All right, well, good morning. How are you? Good, good, good. As you know, I am talking about everybody's favorite subject, money, money, money. And uh, I will confess this, um, I'd only preached on money one other time, and so this was arguably the least excited message I had ever prepared for going into this. And at the end of it, I felt like God spoke to me and challenged me, so if you were like me when you heard we're talking about money and you bristled a little bit, you're in good company. I was the same way. Uh, But my prayer as you hear us speak about this, uh, you would not think of this as the church trying to get more money for more resources, but really you just see it as a part of your discipleship to Jesus. Discipleship isn't something you do for an hour a week at a coffee shop with someone. Discipleship is really about you being with Jesus and becoming like him so that out of that you can do what he did. And if you're gonna do what Jesus did, you have to have a theology of money. And you go, why? Can't we just keep money separate from the church? Can't we just keep all these things separate? Well, the reason that is so problematic is this. Do you know that Jesus uh, gave 40 parables in the New Testament, 40 parables, 11 of them, had to deal with the subject of finances. It was Jesus' most talked about subject. And you know what was sobering to me as I started preparing for this, I had no idea this, but do you know that Jesus actually preached and spoke more on the subject of finances and money than he did on prayer and faith combined? So obviously there's some sort of theology that Jesus wants us to have when it comes to money. In fact, do you know this in the Bible? There are two things, two things, only two things that you and I as followers of Jesus, if you do call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to flee from. Two things, do you know what those are? That's a great guess, money is one of them. Yes indeed, money is, what do you think the next one is? Lust, you guys are good. Uh, Someone in the last group said politicians, all right? So I appreciate you being spiritual. But it is in fact money and lust. Everything else the Bible says you are to stand and resist But there's something about money and lust the Bible says has this gravitational pull that if you don't have the theology, if you don't have the mindset of Jesus, then you're gonna fall prey on on this thing called life and you're gonna get a, a view of life that Jesus never intended you to have. And so that's why we're gonna be looking at this passage we just read from Matthew chapter six. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. But, but as we're getting ready to look at this passage, you know, there was a sobering story about the vision of money and how captive it can be because I recently heard about Warren Buffett. You know Warren Buffett, he is the richest man in the world, and he talked about at 10 years old, he had a vision of money that seized his whole life in his heart. He was actually on a trip with his uh, father, and his father was taking out some wealthy clients, and so uh, on this trip, he noticed that one of these wealthy clients, he just had a lifestyle where everything revolved around him. Like people waited on him, they served him, he had this strength and this aura about him. He said he was at this bar, restaurant, lounge area, as 10 year old, and he was watching this wealthy guy and he was literally picking out the kind of tobacco leaf he wanted for his cigar. And then he watched this waiter roll up this cigar that this guy had hand selected, and then this waiter lit it for him, and Warren Buffett said at that moment at 10 years old, he said, whatever gets me that kind of life, I want that. At 10 years old, at some meeting, he decided the vision of his life was going to be, I want to be the richest man in the world. Why do I tell you that? Because if you don't have a vision for your life, the world will write one for you. And can I just say this? It doesn't matter if you're a teenager. When I heard these talks as teenagers, I didn't think they mattered. It doesn't matter if you're a senior adult. If you do not have a vision for your life, the world will write a story for you that is lesser than what Jesus has. And dare I say and believe this, 
Dare I say and believe it, if your vision is to become the richest man or woman in the world, that vision is just too small for the kingdom of God. And that's in essence why Jesus is writing his disciples, his followers, not because he wants to shame them or obligate them to give money to a church or a structure. He is the God of all. And honestly, we talk about this, there's a fear in the economy we're in on giving and inflation and all that, but can I just remind you, Jesus is not going, what's gonna happen if the Heights people don't give? His economy is unshakable. His resources are never depleted, and so he's not wondering what's gonna happen if people don't give. And so the spirit of this talk is not trying to get us to give out of obligation. It is inviting us to have a vision for our life where we see the kingdom of God in such a way that if we understand what we have in Jesus, we understand we are truly rich. And on the flip side, if we have all the stuff in this world, and that's why you hear story after story of people who have everything on the outside, but on the inside, something is missing. And that's why Jesus boldly says in Matthew chapter 6, 19, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But do store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, years ago, I, I was at a, a particular church and I was serving and uh, I lost my job at this church and, and uh, I'm telling you, that ended up being one of the greatest gifts that I'd ever been given. Now, if you would have told me in that moment, if you would have been one of those people that was trying to encourage me and been like, hey, God's gonna work out everything for the good of those who trust him, I would have told you to be quiet and go away. Because in that moment, when people tell you things like, it's like when you break up with someone, like, oh, there's other fish in the sea. It's like, shut up, you know? It's just like, no one wants to hear that stuff. And everyone gave me all these Bible verses, of it. but in that moment, it was like my whole world was devastated. And maybe you're in a place like that, maybe you've been at a place like that, something in your life is taken away, and you, you know part of the reason it's devastating is because your whole life and your identity revolves around that particular thing, and that's what happened in this job. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was like my sense of worth and value was tethered to this particular job. And frankly, I was finding fruit in this job. I was traveling around to different places in the world. I was sharing the gospel. The ministry that I happened to be a part of was experiencing fruit. I'll never forget, I was preaching at a church and someone was introducing me and I never thought about this, but he was saying, hey, Brian's gonna come preach. I've got to know him. And he said, you know, Brian is leading arguably the largest youth ministry in the nation, if not the largest, one of the largest youth ministries in the nation. On the outside, I'm like, stop it. On the inside, I'm like, bring it on. And it was like my whole sense of worth and identity, my value was attached to this job. Fast forward, I ended up losing this job, partly because it was just like, I was so attached to this job that people around me saw it wasn't healthy for me. And then I had this moment after I lost this job that I was going to the church to pray one night. The church that I was a part of, it was this massive building, they had this man-made lake in the middle and on the other side was this hill. And I remember I was on this hill in isolation in darkness and on the other side was this church and all of its beauty and all of its grandeur and they had all these lights that were on in the night and I was looking at this church and it was like the lights were just sort of reflecting and dancing off the water and here I am on this hill in darkness and isolation. And to make matters worse, there was literally this hill where all the geese would go throughout the day and they would use the bathroom. 
So I'm literally standing in this hill in isolation, in darkness, surrounded by geese waste, and I heard one thing. My heart was so heavy that I didn't hear God break through in radical ways, but I felt the Holy Spirit impress one verse upon my heart that was Philippians 3.8, where Paul says this, I counted as rubbish. Translation, I counted as waste for this one thing to know Christ Jesus my Lord. And I remember standing there, even though I didn't believe it in that moment, I remember God in his own way saying this to me, that vision you have over there is just too small. And in some way, what he was trying to do on this hill in isolation is remind me that the kingdom of God, the presence of God, the power of God is greater than anything this world has to offer. And somewhere, even in serving God, I had forgotten that. Can I just say that part of what Jesus is saying is if your vision for life, if what you treasure is anything other than Jesus, what he's saying to you this morning is, hey, that vision simply put is too small. The new watch, the new car, the season tickets, the new home, the relationship, your kid's future, all that stuff, although good, it is simply put too small. And the problem with that stuff is fundamentally, you know deep down, it will never fill you up and it will never alter your life. If everything you and I wish for happened, would it really make you happy? That's why Jesus goes, you better be careful. And obviously this is a big enough problem because if people weren't falling prey to these visions, Jesus wouldn't have to say it in his most important sermon, which is Sermon on the Mount. If everyone was just naturally treasuring the kingdom of God, he wouldn't stop down and go, do not store up for yourselves treasures on this earth. Obviously enough people were falling prey to a lesser vision that Jesus in his longest, most important sermon felt it necessary to address it. And this is important when you speak about this. As we talk about money, let me just get a few disclaimers off the bat. First of all, Jesus is not saying stuff is bad. It's okay to have resources. It's okay to have the new home, the new car. What he's saying is when those things become treasured, when your sense of identity is tethered around whether I have those, that's the issue. The other thing that's very important to mention, this is not a talk on being rich or poor. Jesus never says it is bad to be rich. And if you aren't careful, what you have is almost like a poverty gospel where people think it's actually blessed to be poor. Jesus never says this. This is a sermon on being greedy or being generous. There are rich people who are greedy, there are rich people who are generous. There are poor people who are greedy and there are poor people who are generous. What Jesus is saying, if the vision for your life is simply resources, it's not enough. And he is challenging us to get to this place. In fact, what he's saying is it's all about what you treasure. And I wanna show you just the definition of treasure that I have loved and hated. And I'm hoping it messes you up like it messes me up. It's simply this. Treasure is just junk waiting to happen. How many of you have an Amazon problem? I had one six months ago. I was ordering on Amazon. Anybody got an Amazon problem? Okay, a few of you, you're, you're not proud of it. It's a safe place, all right? But you know, like when you go to Amazon, you do things, there's just this part Wherever you are, you get something new. Like you get a new iPad, you get a new TV. It's like the doorbell, there's just a party and it's like, yes, that new thing. And literally, what has happened to me as I started to think about this, like after I read this definition, it just started messing with my mind. Cause like I got a new phone a little while ago and I'm like, that's great, but how many new phones have I got? It's just a matter of time before I trade that bad boy in. 
It's like, you know, I get a new TV, it's just a matter of time before I trade that TV in. Everything that I have at some point, or at least majority of it, is just junk waiting to happen. It's gonna be transferred on, passed down at a garage sale, it's gonna be at a landfill, goodwill, and you're going, this is depressing, thank you very much. (laughs) But the truth is, think about it. Think about the things that most of your life you've gone, oh my gosh, I got this thing. And now you don't even know where it is. What Jesus is doing, he's not condemning, he's not shaming, he's inviting you to step into a larger story. Like there are times when I look at things that I thought I wanted. Years ago, I've shared this, I think before, maybe I don't remember. I was at Costco, God's holy place, right? I'm in there. They have a $400 popcorn maker and I'm convinced this will change my life. I buy this $400 popcorn maker and it makes the worst $400 popcorn you have ever had. I used it one time and put it in the closet. We were moving from Illinois and I remember looking at that popcorn maker going, you were supposed to make my life better. I left it in Illinois. I gave it to the homeowner. I didn't even wanna see that $400 popcorn maker. In that moment, that $400 popcorn popcorn maker mattered to me. The reason I tell you this, if you are not careful, all the things that seem important, you will get to heaven one day. You will get to heaven and you will look back and you go, I wasted my life on that thing. That job, that resource. It was almost like God gave me a supernatural ability to show me what matters in this moment in the grand scheme of eternity is different. That's why Jesus says, do not, do not, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where $400 popcorn makers get left in a closet. He's saying instead, store up your treasures on on heaven where neither moth and rust consume. And part of the way that we do this is we start to have a PhD kind of understanding of who we are in Jesus. So here's the problem. The moment people would say things growing up about, hey, you need to treasure things in Jesus, I'm like, yeah, yeah, but you don't understand the job, the life, the car, because there's just this gravitational pull that if you don't understand what you have in Jesus and who you are, the stuff of this world just looks too great. And so in essence, what I wanna do today is just remind you who you are and what you have in Jesus, because if you don't know that, you will never treasure the things that God has given you. In fact, here's some slides. These are from the Bible that speak about our identity, all right? So here's just a few things, reminders of who you are. You are God's coworker. You are a minister of reconciliation. You are alive with Christ. You are raised up with Christ. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. You've been shown the incomparable riches of God's grace. God has expressed his kindness to me. You are God's workmanship. You have been brought near to God through Christ's blood. You have peace. You have access to the Father. You are a member of God's household. You are secure. You are a holy temple. Next slide. I am a dwelling for the Holy Spirit. I share in the promise of Christ Jesus. God's power works through me. I have access to the Father. I can approach God with freedom and confidence. I know there is a purpose in my suffering. I can grasp how wide, long, high, and deep Christ's love is. Next slide, I've got a few more, don't worry, all right. I just needed to take a breath, all right. I am completed by God. I bring glory to God. I have been called. I give thanks for everything. I don't always have to have my own agenda. I can honor God through marriage. I can parent my children with composure. Amen. Next slide. I can be strong. I have God's power. I stand firm in the day of evil. I am dead to sin. I am not alone. I am growing. I am his disciple. Do you know? Do you know? 
that isn't even half the slides I had. I had 13, but for your spirit, I stopped at five. I encourage you, email me, I will give you that list. But can I say, I could stop the message after this. I have never in my life, never once, met anybody who understands what they have in Jesus, who they are in Jesus, and does not give generously of their resources. I've never met it. That's why when you talk about money, you can't just talk about, oh, we, need, we, we fund these things, we do these things. Frankly, heaven doesn't need our funds. And so there's a danger of somewhere I think I'm tipping God out of the overflow of the presence of God, of the sonship of God, that's why I give. Because God has so richly blessed me. Can I just say this? If you struggle with tithe, that word tithe like I did, can I just encourage you, challenge you, put this thought into your mind. Do you know that literally the Bible says that God tithed his son Jesus? That's what he did. So you go, you know what? I don't just give my money. Like I am, I'm responding to a God who tithed his very son. Do you know that the Bible says things like first fruits and firstborn? Why does it say that? Because in essence, what the Bible wants you to understand is that God did not have 10 sons to give. In John 3, 16, the verse we often quote, remember what it says? For God so loved the world, he gave what? His only son. He tied the only thing he had for us. And so I don't give out of obligation. I go, if I'm that, if I'm in Christ Jesus and I'm yours and you tithe what matter most, I can give you my resources back because they're all yours anyway. That's the important thing we've got to understand. And if you're like me, we've all been in this season. There's no shame. If you find yourself just a little more attached to money than you'd like, Jesus is very honest about what the problem is in Matthew chapter 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In essence, he says, if your heart treasures money or possessions, it's going to be hard to give generously. But if God really is first in your life, meaning you understand who you are and what you have in him, you will give generously. And I know the moment you say that, people bristle a little bit, don't make this about God and money, but Jesus did. Because in essence, what he's saying here is, what you treasure, your heart will follow. Let me just give you a practical example of why this is true, even if you don't like it. There are people who are spenders and savers. But even people who are savers, when you have a hobby, even if you don't like spending, it is easier for you to spend on something that is a hobby. It is easier for you to give your resources being time or money. Why? Because you treasure that thing. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is if you treasure me above all and my kingdom, if you know what I have, then you will give differently. And also this, if you know that everything you have, you are simply stewards of, you're just holding on to, you will give differently. And I'm not convinced that some of you believe me based on your face. So here's what I'm gonna do. You've asked for it, all right? I want every one of you, every one of you, and I'm gonna watch. I want every one of you to reach in your back pocket, in your purse, and pull out your wallet or your purse. That means you too. Everybody who has one. All right. And here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to give your wallet or purse to the person next to you who is not one of your family members. So Mr. Miles, let's trade it up. All right. All right, here we go. I was gonna tell Miles he got the raw end of the deal because I'm a pastor, but he has $1 in his wallet, so I feel like I'm losing. 
Now here's what I want you to do in just a moment, all right, just a moment. Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna ask the ushers to come down. <laughs> and what we're gonna do, we have credit card machines, whatever it is, whatever you wanna do, we're gonna have a moment for you to tithe whatever your heart desires from that person's resources. So if you haven't had your tithe, this is a perfect time to catch up right now. Some of you are going, this is gonna be the biggest tithe of my life, oh yes it is. Now I know I'm gonna lose some of you, so give the wallet back right now, thank you Miles. I picked the wrong partner. But here's the deal. Silly illustration, powerful point, because here's the reality. If you asked me to give from Miles' resources, how hard would that be for me? Not very hard. Because I realized I was just given something for a moment and I was entrusted with it, and so now all of a sudden, it is easy to give. If I really, really, really believe that everything I have is from God, every resource I have is from God, I am living on this earth for a short moment, then I'm gone, and God has simply allowed and trusted me with resources, I will give differently. And if I don't, what Jesus says, there's a problem with what our heart treasures. And there's no shame in this. There are many of you who've been attending church for a while, and your giving has stopped. Partly maybe because, like me, you didn't have a theology of giving. You just hear oh, well, you should give because you're supposed to. And Jesus goes, no, you're not supposed to give because you're supposed to. You're supposed to give because it's an overflow of your life in me. And everything you have, everything you have has been entrusted and gifted to you by me. If I gave you every resource I had and then all of a sudden I came over to your house, you wouldn't give me leftovers. You'd give me the best because I gave you everything you had. And here's the problem is some of us will buck a little bit at this because there are really three approaches with money. You'll see them on the screen. The first one is this. The first one is what's mine is mine. And that's really the approach of selfishness. And so in essence, what happens here is people go, yeah, yeah, I get that you're saying that, but God didn't wake up at 4 a.m. and go to work for it. Like God didn't get that PhD. God didn't do all this hard work. And so I get you saying that, but it doesn't really apply because I went to school, I paid the price, I did this. But here's the problem with even that logic from a biblical standpoint. We believe that every good and perfect gift comes from God. There are people who have just as much talent as you, but they didn't choose where they were born. There are people who have every bit the resources or, or the potential that you did, but they didn't get the same circumstances you did. It doesn't minimize what you've done. But even your ability, your capacity, even for me as a preacher or a leader, if ever someone encourages me, you know what, I realize that even the spiritual gift I'm given is from God. My faith is from God. I didn't make myself a man of faith. He gave that gift to me. Every gift you have is from God. And so all of a sudden, if I go, well, that's mine, and I worked hard, then suddenly what you have is you have this spirit of selfishness. The other option is this. What's yours is mine, and frankly, the Bible calls it stealing, unless you're the government, and it's socialism, all right? <laughs> Too much, I'm sorry. All right. The final one is this. What's mine is God's, stewardship. In essence, this is where you really believe that everything you have been given is from God. You are simply stewards of it. You are not taking it with you. And he has given different people different capacity to make resources. Some of you, you should be encouraged by this. Some of you, you are wired. You have a business acumen to make money. You should make as much money as you can. The important part is you don't treasure it just for yourself. 
You become a gospel patron. You know, it's interesting in the book of Acts, part of the reason the church moves in powerful ways isn't just because preachers were on stage. There were people that funded the move of Jesus. And that's part of the calling on their life. And there, there are people who are gifted. There was a person who wanted to work with me at the last church I was at. I sat down with her and I said, you pray about this, but I don't believe God's called you to work in the ministry right now. Because you have a wiring and a capacity. This woman named Trinity, I mean, she was a driver. She got things done. She was very successful in her line of work. And I said, I believe God's called you to make a bunch of money and build up his kingdom. She prayed about it, and that's exactly what God put on her heart in the midst of it. So this is not a rich or poor conversation. This is a greedy or generous conversation that applies to everyone in this room. So if you're in a place where you just go, you know what, I want to increase in generosity. Or if you're in a place where you go, this isn't just about generosity, this is about the vision of my life. If I'm honest, I'm just not treasuring the things of God and somewhere my heart knows that I should be more passionate about the things of Jesus than I am because all of us have been in dry spots. What do you do if you're in that place where you wanna give out of an overflow and more than give out of an overflow, you want your heart to ignite for the things of God. You wanna approach God and have a fire that just consumes you. So as that old hymn said, the things of this world does grow strangely dim. Because right now, if you're honest, some things might be burning brighter in your heart and your imagination than Jesus. What do you do? Well, Jesus says this in Matthew 6, through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light of darkness, and you go, what does that mean? Let me just show you a couple things in here that I think are incredibly important. Number one, it says in verse 22, if your eyes are healthy, some versions say if your eyes are good. Do you know that word there in Greek is actually translated single-minded? So it's, it's almost read like this, if your eyes are single-minded, meaning if you have a single focus on the kingdom of God, you will have a joy, a life, a peace, of freedom. You know what I say to people, at least it's true for me, but I think all of you would agree with this. When you're right with Jesus and single mind, it doesn't mean that you don't acquire stuff, you don't lead successfully, but it just means you treasure him above everything else. It's like everything's different in life. It's like your food tastes better. It's like you can be sitting in a room with chaos and you can have peace. You can look on the relationships that you have in your life and instead of thinking about what you don't have, you go, I'm a rich man or woman. Yeah. It's like you, you can walk outside and the sunlight just feels a little bit brighter on your face because there is a single-mindedness where it's you and God. That's why you can have people who on the, on the outside circumstances, their world is falling apart, but they are single-minded and they have a joy, a life that is convicting. But then you can have other people who have everything. You know those people. You see it in culture and society all the time. You see it in coworkers and relationships. You see it in neighbors. You look at their life and you go, you should be way happier with all the resources you have and yet something is missing. Why? Because they are not single-minded, the Bible says. Their eyes are chasing after the stuff of this world. And what the Bible says for that word unhealthy is a double-mindedness. And what that means is, on one hand, you come and you sing songs about Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I praise you, Jesus, you can have it all, but on the inside, you're like, but you can't have this. 
And you know what that does? The Bible calls that the war between spirit and flesh. And what it does is it makes you miserable. It creates fear. It creates a competitiveness. I know this sounds like an odd phrase, but I literally said this the other day and it's been stirring in my mind. Some people have just enough Jesus to make them miserable. Think about this. If you've ever had a moment where you've awakened to the glory of God, all the business success in the world will not satisfy. If you've ever had a moment where you've just come to the face-to-face with the God of the universe in your prayer time and a church service, and then you just get the new home, the new car, all the resources, all the relationships, something's still missing. Because what, what's happened in that moment is you've tasted and you've seen God is good, and you know deep down you were not made for the stuff of this earth. But then what happened is somewhere the pull of this world, the vision for life, as you got your eyes off of Jesus, you became double-minded. And you started to believe the lie that it is Jesus plus that thing. Jesus plus my kid's future. Jesus plus my retirement account. Listen, I, I know the economy is down. I've talked to so many people. There is a fear and a worry. But the thing is, is that when you get to the place where you start to focus on that to the point, then the Bible says you become double-minded. When you really believe he is the author, perfecter of our faith, he is the alpha, the omega, he is the creator of all, he spoke everything to existence. If he can handle that, he can handle your financial problems. And so the invitation is become single-minded again. It actually feels careless, but stop worrying, Jesus says. In fact, verse 25, he goes on to say, for who has ever added a day to their life by worrying? Jesus is going, you're not in control. I am in the middle of this scenario. So be someone who is faithful. Can I just say this? Can I encourage you? If you're going, that's great, but practically tell me a couple things. Let me just tell you one thing. If you are in a place where you are just desiring the stuff, you feel drawn into stuff of the world. I was there, I don't know, six months ago, something like that. What I would say to you is go back to what I said. The Bible says you are to flee from money and lust. So anytime, if you sat down with me, let me just say this practically, you sat down with me and said, you know what, I'm just desiring the stuff of this world too much. Or if you sat down with me and said, I have a sexual purity problem, I'm struggling with lust, I would tell you the same thing. What you don't have is a greed problem, what you don't have is a lust problem, what you have is a looking problem. Your eyes are focused on all the wrong things. In fact, if I was sitting down with you, I would... I would bet a ton of money on this one fact. If I sat down with you and you said, hey, I'm far from God, I just feel like other things, I would say, tell me your rhythm. Tell me what you're spending your time looking at. And what you would find, if you're like me, is when I noticed those things, I was spending a lot of time on, I've said this before, the seventh layer of hell, which is Facebook and Instagram, and I was just looking at people's stuff. And never once was I like, man, that person got a new car. Bless them in the name of Jesus. I was like, I, I got a 2012 Sonata. Jesus, when are you gonna bless me? I never once watched someone talk about how amazing their food was and just be like, that has made me better today. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but literally we are being discipled by the consumerism in this world. I don't think social media is evil. I just think when you get on there, if you have no agenda other than seeing that, then that becomes your life. You compare yourself to other people. And this comparison thing gets your eyes so off the promises of God that suddenly when someone else gets blessings, you start to go, well, God, where's mine? God, where, where's your faithfulness in this? And we can't even see the blessings we've received because we are so blinded by the stuff of this world. So what's the invitation? 
flee from that. Get your eyes back on the promises of God. Get your eyes back on your identity in Jesus. Start combing the pages of the Bible and go, you know what? That person can have that car. I want the faith of Gideon. That person could have that resources. Give them 10% more in their retirement. But you know what? I want a faith like Abraham because faith is possible for anyone. So I want a faith like Abraham that will do whatever God says. You know what? Like, I'm not gonna just go, you know what? That job and that position, it's important to me, Jesus. But I want a faith like Mary who walks into a room with a bunch of religious elites and goes, you know what? I'm gonna pour it all out for Jesus, even if I'm criticized. And what happens is you get your eyes on the things of God and suddenly your heart starts to beat again. Can I just say this, and then I'll move on to a couple final closing thoughts, is this. If your heart is not beating for God, then my encouragement is get your eyes on Jesus and repent. We talk about repent like a sentiment. It's not. The, the word for repent literally means this. It means that, that you have to turn because you have a looking problem. If I'm facing this way, I can't see God. But if I repent, all of a sudden, I am looking at the promises of God. I am getting back to him. And the Bible says, then he who began the good work in you will be faithful. I know not everyone is in a place where you are ready to hear this, but can I just say this? For some of you, you just accepted the fact that mediocre faith is what God has called, or the faith was a thing of the past. Can I just say, God can make your heart beat in ways it's never beaten before. He can give you a faith that you never believed possible for. The kingdom of God is so indestructible, he gave it to broken men and women and children. And when people saw that people had been with Jesus, they go, these are common, ordinary men, but they've been with Jesus. That's what happens when God gets a hold of your heart and transforms you. And if you don't, what happens is you will start to serve two masters, as Jesus says in Matthew 6, 25. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one, love the other, you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, be, you cannot serve God and money. So uh, two quick takeaways, and then I'll wrap this up. As you think about practically what that looks like, as you're looking towards God, uh, one thing that I would say to you and this won't be for everybody, but maybe part of living for God is to live differently. This will be a new concept. It was challenging to me when I first heard it. A mentor shared it with me about a year ago. I still don't know what to do with it. I haven't really done anything, but it's a thought that I just wanna place in your mind, and maybe the Holy Spirit does something. But, but literally, he was saying that we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. And then he talked about something I never heard of called radical class distinction. And this is what he said. He said, once you get to a particular clash, you will be tempted to put on certain cultural markers of success, aka wealth signaling for those around you. It's certain brands, certain luxury items that people will go, you've made it to the club. And he goes, when, when you don't live in the class or the structure that you can, people are gonna be asking the question, why are you doing that? And you can give the answer that the gospel is part of that. I realize that is not for everybody. I still don't know what to do with that. But here's what I do know. Jesus wants us to have a, a conversation about the theology of money. And this is important. As you talk about radical class distinction, Jesus is not shaming people who don't live that way. And here's the point. Most people just look at the classes above them and go, well, that person needs to hear it. That's not the point. Every one of us is in a class and Jesus is going, what you do with your money is to be invited into a conversation, into a prayer with him. And so we don't judge, we don't do these, we just ask God. How might you be calling me to live? And so I just wanna challenge you to think about that. But the second practical thing that everyone can get is this. 
It's just start giving even today. Start with small steps. You know, part of the thing about money, we don't often think about this, is almost like you have to develop the muscle of giving. If you were trying to run a marathon, many of us couldn't go run a marathon at this particular time, but you start training. I think when we talk about money, we just tell people to go give, and some people, you've never given before, and that's okay. But you need today to start to develop this muscle of giving, not because the church needs your resources, but because part of your discipleship of being with Jesus and becoming like him is doing what he did, even with resources. And so here's what I would say on this slide. Um, you can get this slide, but it's super simple. It's four steps. We talk about this in a member's class. Frankly, I don't think we talk about it enough, but it is moving from nothing to something. If you have never given resources, just give something. Give whatever's in your wallet that you feel comfortable giving. Give whatever resource you do. It's like when you go to the gym, you just start somewhere. And then some of you, you give more frequently, you give something, but it's time for you to start giving specific. You sit down with your spouse, you sit down by yourself, you get the, the planner out, you go, hey, I think we can give 4% this year. I think we can give $2,000 every couple months. Whatever that number is, the number is really not as important as the spirit that you give, but then the next is specific to tithe. That you would get to the place where you would give 10% of your resources. But then there's another one which is tithe to spirit-led. And this is where in the same way you would pray about what you read in the Bible, what you're gonna do after you retire, you would start to pray about what you do with your resources. Every year my wife and I try to pray about, Holy Spirit, is there anyone else you want us to give towards? Is this the number that you want us to give? And it's just inviting him into that. It is between you and God alone. But it is an invitation to start to move towards spirit-led giving. And let me just close with this. You know, every day I come home from work, I have three kids, I have an eight-year-old and two twin daughters. And it's interesting the way they respond when I come home. My eight-year-old used to run up to me, but now every time I walk into the house, he is literally on his couch with his iPad. There are times that I'm not making this up, I have sat in front of him, stood in front of him for close to three minutes before he realizes I am standing in front of him. And usually what I get is a nod like, hey dad, and then it's back to his video game. My daughters, though, they're three years old, a whole different approach. Th those girls are like little gremlins, I love it. They just like, as soon as I get home, they're like clawing on me, but, but the problem is, one of the things they ask as soon as I get in, my daughters go, prize, prize, prize. <laughs> Every day they want me to bring them something. I have never once shamed my daughter for asking for prizes. Most of the time I give them a prize. Can I encourage you with this? Jesus never shames you asking. There is not a prayer in the Bible where someone has asked something that Jesus has shamed anybody asking anything. In fact, what he convicts or what he calls out is people who don't ask. God loves your asking. But my daughters did something that moved my heart just this last week. When I got home, they had made me pictures and they walked up to me and they handed me these pictures that to you probably would have looked like garbage, but to me, it was one of the greatest gifts and they just said prize. And I'm telling you, like, as a dad, it moved my heart. Listen, I love them asking. But the fact that they wanted to bless their dad was a gift. Why do I tell you this? Just two things I want to say. God loves when you go into your prayer closet and you ask him. He loves it. He wants you to ask about the health and the job and the kids and all those things. But there is a part where you, you think about this. You as a child of God, you have the ability to move the father heart of God. 
You don't bring $10 in, $100 in. It's not about the amount. It's about the fact that you, instead of asking for a blessing from God, you would be mindful of God enough to walk into the throne room and go, here is my gift prize. Do you know what that would do? Do you think about the fact that even with your resources, the alpha and the omega, the creator of the universe, your gifts, your prizes have the ability to move his heart? Not because the amount, I mean, my daughter's prizes, even though they're beautiful to me, they will never hang in an art gallery. Some of your resources will not make a huge dent in certain things, but you know what it will do? It will move the father heart of God. But the second part of that is the reason that gift was so moving is they didn't do it out of obligation. They did it out of joy. Imagine if my kids just walked up and said, mom told me to draw this, here you go, have a good day. (laughs) Wouldn't mean a whole lot. They chose out of the joy of their heart to create that picture. If you are giving, can I just say this? Even if your spirit is cold and icy right now, can I just encourage you in the midst of this? Give out of joy because he has so richly blessed you in the name of Jesus. God tithed his son and the Bible says for the joy set before him he endured the cross. God joyfully gave his son for you. So why would we not be people who give not out of obligation, but out of joy. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you that you are a good God, that you love us, that you are merciful, that you are mighty. I still, even as I say that, it is hard for me to comprehend that you would tithe your one and only son, that you would give so sacrificially. And I pray that as we speak about the subject of money, oftentimes it can have an obligation or a guilt. I bind that in the name of the enemy. That is not the spirit of God. The spirit of God is one of kindness and compassion, but it is one where we understand our identity and out of that identity, we become people of generosity. So I pray that that spirit of generosity would first rise up in me, that you would allow me not just to preach some words, but be a person who embodies this life of generosity. And I pray that would be true of every person in this room. For people who don't know you, may they not feel like even the gospel is an obligation or a burden, but it is an opportunity to know you, a generous God. And I pray for those of us who are giving that the spirit of our giving would be one where we know we can bless the Father's heart and we would do it out of joy. So God, as we give today, whatever it is that we are giving, we pray that you would receive that. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Hey, before you go celebrate a Cowboys victory tonight, which I believe in faith they will win, um, I wanna encourage you, um, if you have any prayer requests, anything you need, come back to the next step room. If you have any questions about who God is, we'd love to answer that. And I encourage you, go make a decision today on what you're gonna start giving to honor God in the midst of that. Have a conversation over lunch. Blessings, you guys are dismissed. We'll see you next week.